0: Hi, and welcome back to Chronicles The Hundred Years' War. This episode is going to be episode 13, and it's going to be back into English politics and the realm of England in general, as well as keeping a little bit on last week's international theme, as we'll also be discussing a little bit about France. Last week, we took our first real look at what the Chronicle had to say about events in France, rather than just it talking indirectly about things that had happened, and that's going to become more common as we move forward. All right, let's dive right in with chapter 23, how the Earl of Kent and Earl Mortimer in England were put to death. This young king, Edward of England, was governed a great space, as ye have heard before, by the council of the queen, his mother, and of Edmund of Woodstock, Earl of Kent, his uncle, and by Sir Roger Mortimer, Earl of March. And at the last, envy began to grow between the Earl of Kent and the Earl Mortimer, insomuch that this Earl Mortimer informed so the young king, by the consenting of the old Queen Isabel, his mother, bearing the king in hand, that the Earl of Kent would have empoisoned him to the intent to be king himself, as he was the next heir apparent to the crown. For the king's younger brother, who was called John of Eltham, was newly dead. And then the king, who gave light credence to them, caused his uncle the Earl of Kent to be taken and openly to be beheaded, without any manner of excuse to be heard, wherewith many of the nobles of the realm were sore troubled and bare a grudge in their hearts towards the Earl Mortimer. And according to the English Chronicle, the earl suffered death at Winchester, the 10th day of October, the third year of the king's reign, and lieth buried at the friars in Winchester. But as by an author saith, within a while after it was reported, Queen Isabel, the king's mother, was with child and that by the Earl Mortimer, wherefore the king was informed and in how the said Mortimer had caused him to put to death the Earl of Kent, his uncle without good reason or cause, for all the realm reputed him to be a noble man. Then, by the king's commandment, this Earl Mortimer was taken and brought to London, and there before the great lords and nobles of the realm was recited by open declaration all the deeds of the said Mortimer. Then the king demanded of his council what should be done with him, and all the lords by common assent gave judgment and said, Sir, he hath deserved to die the same death that Sir Hugh Spencer died. And after this judgment, there was no delation of sufferance nor mercy, but incontinent he was drawn throughout London and then set on a scaffold, and his members cut from him and cast into a fire. And his heart also, because he had imagined treason, and then courted, and his quarters sent to four of the best cities of the realm, and his head remained still in London. And within a little space after, the king commanded, by the advice of his council, that the queen his mother should be kept close in a castle and so it was done and she had with her ladies and damsels knights and squires to serve her according to her estate and certain ladies assigned to her to maintain therewith her noble estate all days of her life but in no wise should she depart out of the castle without it were to see such sports as was sometimes showed before the castle gate for her recreation thus this lady led forth her life there meekly and once or twice a year, the king, her son, would come and see her. The English Chronicle showeth diverse other considerations why the Earl Mortimer suffered death. The witch was on St. Andrew's Even in the year of our Lord MCCCXXIX, the which I pass over and follow mine author. Okay, I'm going to pause here because what just happened is something that is discussed a little bit in history, but doesn't quite sound the same way in history or even popular recreations as it does in the Chronicle. So let's see if we can check in with my library and see if we can find someone who's going to tell this story in a slightly different manner. So once again, we're coming back to the history of England that we have read from before. As a quick reminder, this one is written by David Hume and William Cook Stafford. It has a rather enjoyable, if a rather dramatic tone for the events that took place in English history. All right, let's have a quick look. Execution of Mortimer, Earl of March. It was impossible that these abuses could long escape the observation of a prince endowed with so much spirit and judgment as young Edward, who, being now in his eighteenth year and feeling himself capable of governing, repined at being held in fetters by this insolent minister, but so much was he surrounded by the emissaries of Mortimer, that it behooved him to conduct the project for subverting him with the same secrecy and precaution as if he had been forming a conspiracy against his sovereign. He communicated his intentions to Lord Montacute, who engaged the Lord Mollins and Clifford, Sir John Neville of Hornby, Sir Edward von huford and others to enter into their views, and the castle of Nottingham was chosen for the scene of the Enterprise the Queen Dowager and Mortimer lodged in that fortress. The King was also admitted, though with only a few of his attendants, and as the castle was strictly guarded, the gates locked every evening and the keys carried to the Queen, it became necessary to communicate the design to Sir William Elland, the Governor, who zealously took part in it. By his direction, the King's associates were admitted at midnight on the 10th of October, through a subterraneous passage which had formerly been contrived for a secret outlet from the castle but was now buried in rubbish. And Mortimer, without having it in his power to make resistance, was suddenly seized in an apartment adjoining the Queen's. Baker, in his chronicle, narrates the arrest of Mortimer as follows. The King, taking with him William Montacute, Robert Holland, and others, go secretly one night by torchlight through a privy way underground till they come to the queen's chamber. When, leaving the king without, they entered and found the queen with Mortimer ready to go to bed. Then laying hands on him, they led him forth, after whom the queen followed crying, Good son, take pity upon the gentle Mortimer. A parliament was immediately summoned for his condemnation and met on the 26th of November. He was accused before that assembly of having usurped regal power from the Council of Regency appointed by parliament, of having procured the death of the late king of having deceived the Earl of Kent into a conspiracy to restore that prince, of having solicited and obtained exorbitant grants by the royal demancers, of having dissipated the public treasure, of secreting 20,000 marks of the money paid by the King of Scotland and of other crimes and misdemeanors. The Parliament condemned him from the supported notoriety of the facts without trial or hearing his answer or examining a witness and he was hanged on a gibbet at the Elms in the neighborhood of London on the 20th of November. It is remarkable that this sentence was near 20 years after reversed by Parliament in favor of Mortimer's son, and the reason assigned was the illegal manner of the proceeding. So you can see a little bit why I said what is in the Chronicle isn't quite what tends to be reported now that we've done a bit of research. In the Chronicle, it definitely seems like Process has followed. You know, someone issues a warrant for Mortimer's arrest and he gets put through all these proceedings. It's definitely not a small group of men conspired to secretly enter a castle, seize Mortimer, immediately declare him as being under arrest by the king's direct and personal authority, escort him, presumably, out through the same tunnel, considering the work that had to go into getting people in secretly, and then hold a parliament, have that parliament essentially be a kangaroo court that just declares him guilty after they read out all of his crimes and then have him summarily executed. Still, this is a very, very important point in the story so far. There's an important fact here that is, as we saw in last week's episode, that there was a feeling that Edward was really just being led around. He was a puppet king and that Mortimer and Isabella were in charge and they were making the decisions. Now, Edward has essentially seized power for himself via what is effectively a coup. And Isabella has been put in a castle. She can't leave. She has attendants who have been assigned by Edward, but presumably have no real loyalty to her and the guards there have trapped her. She can live according to her station, and she will receive a pension that allows her to live in a queenly fashion. But one thing that isn't mentioned in the Chronicle here is that a very large number of estates that she had claimed and a large number of funds that she had awarded herself go back to the crown or previous holders who are more deserving of them. And Isabella's extremely rich lifestyle is now reduced to what Edward considers to be sufficiently queenly, which is still a considerable amount of money. She is still very wealthy. She's just not unbelievably wealthy. She's also politically cut off. She has no real ability to influence the politics of England anymore, which means Edward is making his own decisions, which... By all rights, he's fully equipped to do, and it is his birthright that he is king. But this is definitely a crux point for England. Does it move forward well from here with Edward in charge, or does it maybe have a bit of trouble? Is Edward going to be better than his father, better than his grandfather, worse than both? We will have to stick around to find out. The first test of Edward's reign, of course, will be chapter 24 here, of the homage that King Edward of England did to the King of France for the Duchy of Guienne. And after the king had done these two executions, he took new counsellors of the most noblest and sagest persons of his realm. And so it was, about a year after that, Philip of Valois was crowned King of France and all the barons and nobles of the realm had made their homage and fealty to him, except the young king of England, who had not done his homage for the Duchy of Guienne, nor also he was not summoned there too. Then the king of France, by the advice of all his council, sent over into England the Lord d'Orbany, the Lord Beausole, and two notable clerks, masters of the Parliament of Paris, named Master Simon of Orléans, and Master Peter of Maseret. These four departed from Paris, and did so much by their journeys, that they came to Asant, and there they took sea and arrived at Dover. And there they tarried a day to abide the unshipping of their horses and baggages. And then they rode forth so long, that they came to Windsor, whereas the king and the young queen of England lay. And there these four caused to be known to the king the occasion of their coming. The king of England, for the honour of the French king, his cousin, caused them to come to his presence and receive them honourably. And then they published their message, and the king answered them how that the nobles of his realm, nor his council, was not as then about him, but desired them to draw to London, and there they should be answered in such wise that of reason they should be content. And so they dined in the king's chamber and after departed and lay the same night at Colbrook and the next day at London. It was not long after, but that the king came to his palace of Westminster and all the council was commanded to be there at a certain day limited. And when they were all assembled, then the French ambassadors were sent for. And there they declared the occasion of their coming and delivered letters from their master. Then the king who went apart with his council to take advice what was best for him to do, Then it was advised by his council that they should be answered by the ordinance and style of his predecessors by the Bishop of London. And so the Frenchmen were called into the council chamber. Then the Bishop of London said, Lords that be here assembled for the King of France, The King's grace, my Sovereign Lord, hath heard your words and read the tenor of your letters. Sirs, we say unto you that we will counsel the King, our Sovereign Lord, here present, that he go to France to see the King, your Master, his dear cousin, who right amably has sent for him. And as touching his faith and homage, he shall do his devoir in everything that he ought to do of right. And sirs, ye may show the King, your Master, that within short space, The king of England, our master, shall arrive in France and do all that reason should require. Then these messengers were feasted, and the king renewed them with great many gifts and jewels. And they took their leave and did so much that at last they came to Paris, where they found King Philip, to whom they recounted all their news, whereof the king was right joyous, and specifically to see the king of England his cousin, for he had never seen him before. And when these tidings were spread abroad in the realm of France, then dukes, earls, and other lords apparelled them in their best manner. And the king of France wrote his letters to King Charles of Bohemia, his cousin, and to the duke of Nevers, certifying them the day and time when the king of England should be with him, desiring them to be with him at the same day. And so they came thither with great array. Then it was counseled the king of France that it should receive the king of England at the city of Amiens, and there to make provision for his coming there was chambers, halls, hostilleries, and lodgings made ready, and apparel to receive them all and their company. And for the duke of Bayonne, the duke of Bourbon, the duke of Lorraine, and Sir John of Artois, there was purveyance for a thousand horse and for six hundred horse that should come with the King of England. The young King of England forgot not the voyage that he had to do into France, and so he apparelled for him and his company well and sufficiently, and there departed out of England in his company two bishops, besides the Bishop of London and four earls, the Lord Henry, Earl of Derby, his cousin German, son to Thomas Earl of Lancaster with the Rhineck, the Earl of Salisbury, the Earl of Warwick, the Earl of Hereford, and six barons, the Lord Reynald Cobman, the Lord Thomas Wake, Marshal of England, the Lord Percy, the Lord Manny. Translator's note: This name, which the translator writes as Manny, perhaps stands for Mohan and the Lord Mowbray, and more than forty other knights. So the king and his company were about a thousand horse, and the king was two days in passing between Dover and Wasant. Then the king and his company rode to Boulogne, and there tarried one day. This was about the mid of August, the year of our Lord God, 1329. And anon the tidings came to King Philip of France, How the King of England was at Boulogne. Then the King of France sent his constable with great plenty of knights to see the King of England, who was then at Montreal by the seaside. And there was great token of love and good cheer made on both parties. Then the King of England rode forth with all his rout, and in his company the constable of France. And he rode so long that they came to the city of Armens where the King Philip and the King of Bohemia and the King of Mallorca and the King of Navarre were ready apparelled to receive the King of England, with many other dukes, earls, and great barons, for there was all the twelve peers of France ready to feast and make cheer to the King of England, and to be there peaceably to bear witness to the King of England's homage. There was the King of England notably received, and thus these kings and other princes tarried at Amens the space of fifteen days. And in the meantime, there were many words and ordinances devised. But as far as I could know, the king of England made his homage to the king of France all only by word and not putting his hands between the king of France's hands, nor none other prince nor prelate limited for him. Nor the king of England would not proceed any further in doing any more concerning his homage, but rather he was determined to return again to England. And there was read openly the privileges of ancient time granted, in the which was declared in what manner the king should do his homage and how and in what wise he should do service to the king of France. Then the king of France said, Cousin, we will not deceive you. This that ye have done has pleased us right well as for this present time, till such time ye be returned again into your realm and that ye have seen, under the seals of your predecessors, how and in what wise ye should do. And so the king of England took his leave and departed from the king of France right aimably, and all other princes that was there, and returned again into England and laboured so long that he came to Windsor, where his queen received him right joyously, and demanded tidings of king Philip her uncle and of her lineage of France. The king showed her all that he knew, and of the great cheer and honor that he had there, and said in his mind there was no realm could be compared to the realm of France. And then within a space after the king of France sent into England of his special council, the Bishop of Chartres and the Bishop of Beauvais, the Lord Louis of Clermont, the Duke of Bourbon, the Earl of Harcourt, the Earl of Tankerville, and diverse other knights and clerks to the Council of England, the which was then holden at London for the performance of the King of England's homage, as you have heard before. And also the king of England and his council had well overseen the manner and form how his ancient predecessors had done their homage for the Duchy of Aquitaine. There were many as then in England that murmured and said how the king their lord was nearer by true succession to the crown of France than Philip of Valois, who was as then king of France. Howbeit the king and his council would not know it nor speak thereof at this time. Thus there was great assembly and much ado how this homage should be performed. These ambassadors tarried still in England all that winter till it was the month of May following, or they had answer definitive, howbeit finally the King of England, by the advice of his council, and on the site of his privileges whereunto they gave great faith was determined to write letters in the manner of patent sealed with his great seal acknowledging therein the homage that he ought to do to the king of france the tenor and report of the which letters patents followeth there is a section in the chronicle here that depicts what the letters are but there's a translator's note that outlines that The work in the Chronicle is not an excellent translation of the actual letters, so I'm going to read from the translator's note instead, and hopefully that will be a more true version of what was depicted. We make it known hereby that when we did homage at amends to the excellent prince, our dear lord and cousin, Philip, king of France, it was said and required of us on his part that we should acknowledge the said homage to be liege homage and that in doing the said homage, we should promise expressly to bear faith and loyalty to him, the which thing we did not as then, because we were not informed of the truth and we did homage to the king of France in general words, saying that we entered into his homage as our predecessors, Dukes of Guienne had formally entered into the homage of the kings of France that then were. And after being well informed of the truth, we acknowledge by these presents that the said homage was, is, and ought to be understood for liege homage, and that we owe to bear faith and loyalty to him, as Duke of Aquitaine and Peer of France, and Earl of Ponthieu and Montreal. And we promise henceforth to bear faith and loyalty to him, and to the intent in time coming that there should never be discord, for this cause we promise for us and our successors, dukes of Aquitaine, that this homage should be made in the manner following. The king of England, duke of Aquitaine, holdeth his hands between the hands of the king of France, and he that shall address the words to the king of England, duke of Aquitaine, shall speak for the king of France in this manner. He shall become liegeman to the king, my lord here present, as duke of Guienne and peer of France. And to him promise to bear faith and troth, say yea. And the king of England, duke of Guienne, and his successors saith yea. And then the king of France receiveth the king of England, duke of Guienne, to this said homage as liegeman, with faith and troth, spoketh by mouth, saving his right and all other. And furthermore, when this, the said king entereth into homage to the king of France for the earldom of Ponteville and of Montreal. He shall put his hands between the hands of the king and France for the said earldom. And he that shall speak for the king of France shall address the words to the king and earl and say thus, Ye shall become my liegeman to the king of France, my lord here present as earl of Pontio and Montreal, and to him promise to bear faith and troth, say yea. And the king, earl of Pontio, say yea, and then the king of France receiveth the king and earl to his said homage, by the faith and by his mouth, saving his right and all other. And after this manner, it shall be done and renewed as often as homage should be done. And of that we shall deliver, and our successors, dukes of Guienne, after these said homages made, as patents, sealed with our great seal, if the king of France require it. And besides that, we promise in good faith to hold and to keep effectuously the peace and concord made between the kings of France and the kings of England, dukes of Guienne, etc. These letters, the lords of France brought to their king their lord, and the king caused them to be kept in his chancery. So you may be asking, what is that all about? And the Cliff Notes version is, there is a process where you recognize levels of authority amongst different people in medieval times by doing them homage. And that means that you do recognize them in a legal sense to be your liege and that you make commitments to them. You recognize them as a figure of authority over you. You recognize them as someone who has the ability to make certain commandments of you. You owe them obligations, whether they be rents, whether that be raising soldiers in times of war. It's a very complex relationship. But When Edward initially went to France, he refused to do liege homage. He said he did general homage, but general homage is very ineffective. It doesn't really make any kind of binding obligations between people. And so the king of France said, hey, look, you know, you have more that you're obliged to do here. Edward said, you know, I don't know that that's the case. I'm going to go back to England and check it out. And then after realizing that, He didn't have any choice in the matter. He did go ahead and do liege homage. And that's why he talks about a very specific manner of placing his hands between the hands of the King of France. The actual procedure that you do when giving homage to another person, how you go about that dictates what level of homage. There's a whole ceremony that's involved in making that happen. This is something that Edward understandably didn't want to go through with. In a very quick and dirty legal sense at this point, the entire realm of England is now subject to France's authority because Edward is the head of all of England, and yet he is a liegeman of the King of France. And so there is a claim to be made that if the King of France came to England and was overseeing a trial or a dispute, then he could pass judgments as a judge. And if he were in conflict with Edward about what a judgment should be on a particular case, then he could veto Edward or somebody who had a case decided by Edward could actually have it be appealed by the King of France because the King of France is technically a higher authority as he is the liege of Edward. Now, typically, that doesn't really come up. But if you do have territories that share borders like Guienne, which you, again, you'll hear referred to as Gascony and Aquitaine, they are vaguely the same amount of space. Aquitaine is technically bigger and holds some other properties, but people tend to use those names fairly interchangeably. The people who are in Guienne are Edward's subjects. Edward is their liege. But They are also sort of subject to French authority because Philip is Edward's liege, and that can cause some real jurisdictional messiness. And lawyers are in full swing at this point, but complex, well-thought-out, tested jurisdictions and who does what, where, and how that all works, that process doesn't exist and so because edward has a legal system that is very entrenched in english history common law and that sort of thing and france has its own legal system which has different precedents and different ways of doing things there's some real potential to get very messy of someone saying well i own this property because you know the law gives it to me in this sense and another person saying well we don't recognize that law And because French law is now theoretically above English law, we don't recognize your ownership and we own it now. That probably won't come up. I'm sure that'll be fine. But it's just an example of how this can cause a bit of problem and how You can imagine that Edward, someone who just was forced to arrest the man who was effectively his stepdad and put his mum in prison just so that he could have some freedom and autonomy to choose, might be very distressed about going to another country, meeting another powerful French noble person, and then saying, yeah, absolutely. You're you're the man in charge. Like, I am your man and you are my liege. That definitely sounds like it would be something that I would struggle to palate if I was in Edward's position. And so that leaves Edward in a tricky position. Ultimately, I think the time that he spent in England before he actually signed those letters to Philip was him trying to wiggle his way out of it. And he didn't get anywhere. If he doesn't pay homage for his lands, then Philip is entitled to legally just say, well, then you have no ownership of them. Like, this is one of the requirements. It's like paying rent. If you don't pay it, then I can evict you. At which point, Philip would probably just annex that section of Southwest France, of which Edward currently owns a part of. And so, not wanting to lose an extremely profitable section of land, as well as, you know, a bunch of his subjects, Edward does what he has to. All right, I think that's probably enough for this episode. I'm sure you've got plenty to think about now. I hope you'll be joining me next week for episode 14, in which we'll have chapter 25, How the Lord Sir Robert of Artois was chased out of the realm of France. And if we have enough time, chapter 26, how the King Edward of England took the towns of Berwick against the Scots. Lots to be excited about there. I hope to see you next week for the next episode of Chronicles The Hundred Years' War.